Hello everyone, we hope you're having a great day. My name is Bobby Katagola, and I am joined by my co-host and friend, Parsha Kasuri. Welcome back to our podcast, Growth Spurt, the best podcast you'll find on the internet about everything and anything, from public policy all the way to cellular physiology. Yeah, yeah, I know. But why can't you drive yet? You don't have I just never got my permit. Oh, dude, yeah. So, my, my cousin's 17. She didn't get a permit either. She, she's getting it at, like, 18. And Dang. When you're like, 18, you don't need a permit, though. So. Oh, right, right. You can just yeah. get straight license. Right. So she never had a permit. She just got her license, and she's, like, super scared to drive. <laughs> oh, dang. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, so um, how we want to do this, like, okay. we want to keep it largely conversational, but we also want to, like, kind if, if you're fine with it, we kind of, like, want to know your story, like, we know, like, like us, I assume you probably had, like, a somewhat normal Asian upbringing, but, like, it clearly um, shows because, like, your comedy is amazing. So we want to know, like, how you started, like, in a place like us and how you ended up there. So can you, like, kind of tell us your story, how you got there? Yeah, so I can give you guys a short version, but, you know, like most kids in my community, it's, like, like everybody around me wanted everybody else to be a doctor like everybody above 45 looks at every kid below 20 and is like you should go into medicine right and so that was like my vision for myself was I really wanted to go into cardiology I had an uncle who was a cardiologist who I really looked up to and like that was my goal that's what I would tell everybody but the through line like since I was a kid was that I love to perform so starting from, you know, eight or nine years old, I would like do these little comedy performances in front of a class where I was just like improvising something and trying to make kids laugh when we had like talent shows or, you know, kind of like show and tell, but everybody could bring their talent. And I would just do stand up, not stand up, but I would like, I don't know, run around and like pretend to hit myself and fall down and like just try to make other kids laugh, you know, mm-hmm. but it, it never really occurred to me as like, thing that could be real because the real thing was always medicine so then I went to college Um, in high school I was doing improv so I was like kind of learning those skills just basic comic skills uh, how to be kind of quick on your feet and how to be uh, funny and to have stage presence and I've also been dancing since I was um, 10 years old where I did like Bollywood fusion dance and um that really got me used to being on stage and kind of got rid of the nerves. But anyways, I went to college, I went to Georgia Tech and I was pre-med and I was majoring in biology. And, you know, that's kind of what I wanted to do. I was ramping up for the MCATs. I was dancing a lot and I'd already started doing stand-up at the time. And somewhere in my senior year, which my advice is that's too late to decide that you don't want to do medicine. Don't Mm. make that decision in your senior year of college, you know? Um, But that year, I was just like, I don't think I can contribute so much of my time and energy in my life to becoming a doctor when I need X amount of hours in a week to dedicate to comedy for me to feel like a person. Um, and so that's when I started doing comedy more aggressively. I went to grad school. Um, I, got, I, I got my day job uh, and then was doing comedy at night. And I still do, you know, on and off work during the day. Um, you know, just to have like a steady income stream. But every night I do stand up. Every night after six o'clock, if I'm not doing an interview for a podcast or something, then I'll be <laughs> I'll be doing stand up. And that's just kind of like how I 
how I got to that path. So what do you think is like your motivation for stand-up? Like, like what, what brings you like, what, like, what causes you to like wake up in the morning or like, at least like in the night for you and be like, oh, I want to do stand-up. Like what's sort of that motivating factor for you? I think that uh, there's a couple things. One is that it's just fun. Like mm. a lot of comics, they end up becoming like uh, adrenaline junkies. You see these guys who just like dedicate their life to skydiving or scuba diving or whatever it is like mm -hmm. comics are the same way it's such a rush to do comedy that you kind of just want to do it more and more but that's more of a habitual thing in terms of like I think the question is like more in your soul why you do comedy I think um brown people especially in like recent years they've really started flourishing in terms of their viewpoint right so mm -hmm. like as a as a group and as a racial identity we've gone we've gone We've made a lot of uh, strides in, in the last 10 years. For sure, yeah. We've gone from being like, you know, Apu on The Simpsons, which a lot of people think Apu on The Simpsons, like it insults them. And then other people are like, no, it's fine. You know, Apu on The Simpsons, I have no strong opinions about a cartoon character. He doesn't <laughs> exist, so I don't really care that much. But there was a time when Apu was like the representation or like the gas station owner in a TV show or, or whatever it might be, the taxi driver that you know the the main white actor gets in the car with and he drives him to the next place mm -hmm. but now you've got people like Dave Patel and Riz Ahmed and like these guys who guys and girls and Mindy who are doing so much for brown people and they've basically evolved that brown experience to be something that's a little bit deeper and more um more real and um more honest and like I, I want to be part of that wave um, yeah. And so that's what I do in, in this, like my, my philosophy for the standup is the same thing because I think there, brown people have a lot to say and like only recently have brown people become part of the American consciousness. Like I think white people, you know, everybody knows that white people create content. I think uh, black people have a very rich history in, in standup specifically, but the idea of the brown comic, you know, that really starts with Russell in what, mm. 2007, 2008, and he's the beginning. And, and you know, even he's not like, he, he's, the, he's the first guy and he's doing like, you know, accents and like my mom hits me or whatever. And he paves the way for these guys like Aziz and Kumail and, and Hassan um, Patel and Hassan yeah. and all these guys. And it's like, yeah, you wanna be part of that, that, that new um, mindset of like the brown American. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's like really cool and inspiring, but I think one thing that's really hard for us and just like people who have ideologies like kind of not forced down their throat, but like surrounding them from growing up is it almost feels like it almost feels like taboo or something to go against that ideology. So how do you say like, because you're saying you're in your fourth year. So how did you know, like the realization that, okay, this is for me and this pathway that I chose, like when I was like 17 or 18, this is not what I want to do. Yeah. Look, I knew a lot of comics who did comedy in college and then they started working and they enjoyed it and they enjoyed working and they enjoyed like being a professional. Like I, I work to pay the bills, but in terms of like who I identify with in my soul and in my mind and how I view myself, I view myself as a comedian. That's my primary identity. That's my um, calling on this earth. Mm. And so a lot of people 
you know, they do comedy and then they realize their calling is something else. Their calling is consulting or it's being a business owner or whatever. And they leave comedy and, or they leave art or they leave dance or whatever it might be. And that's okay. You're allowed to get into this because it's a creative outlet and it's something that makes you happy and you enjoy it. And then you decide you've grown out of it emotionally or mentally. That's okay. But what you're talking about is when you're allowing external forces to influence that internal perception. So my, my internal core, who I am is comedian. I, I know that, right? And so once you know that nobody else should be able to shake you. I think when you're 16 or 17 or 18, other people's opinion weighs a lot on you, right? Like your mom and dad, it starts there really. Yeah. Uh, and then it extends to your teachers and then it extends to your parents, friends, and it extends to your siblings and blah, blah, blah. But at some point you have to shut out all that noise and just sit down with yourself and say, who am I truly? And if that answer is comedian, that's great. You've got a long and difficult path ahead of you. If that answer is doctor, you've got a long and difficult path ahead of you. It's going to be difficult in a different way, but it's going to be difficult. But at some point, you just have to sit down with yourself and go, who am I really? And for me, I, I had that conversation. I was ignoring that conversation with myself for a while. And when I finally had that conversation with myself when I was 20 or 21 years old, I was like, oh, shit, I'm comedian. Like there's not, you know, that that's what it is. And once you've come to that realization, it doesn't matter what anybody says or what anybody's mm -hmm. shoving down your throat or, you know, because that's who you are. Yeah. Nothing is sadder than, than meeting the, um, you know, the consultant who really wanted to be an actor, you know, that that's sad. Mm -hmm. It's not sad. Like in the sense that you, I, cause I know a lot of those guys and um, unfortunately a lot of them are Brown people. Yeah. And they'll talk to me and they'll be like, Hey man, you got it. You got to do your thing. You know, I see your videos. I, I watch your YouTube. Like I see your, your dates that you're doing these shows, like go get them, man. I always wanted to be a comic. And it's like ugh, that, you know, that just breaks your heart. Cause it's like, we're in America, man. We're in America. We're mm -hmm. in this country. We, nobody, you know, we're, we're not getting shot at by rockets. Our lives aren't in danger. If you're a Brown kid, you probably have more privilege than the average American. And it's like, why would you not be true to, to your core? Why? Just because some auntie at a wedding might say something. Yeah. I want to touch a little bit on what you were talking about before, sort of like, uh, I guess, like prominent figures in the comedy industry. Mm -hmm. um, so I sort of got into stand up comedy from like the Joe Rogan podcast. I was just going through Everybody. his podcast. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I was going through his podcast and then I was going through like episodes with like Bo Burnham. Russell, um, there was Andrew Schultz. That was another big guy that I started following. And then um, I, like, I started looking into like uh, Andrew Schultz's content and then I found Akash Singh. And yeah. so I sort of went through that like comedy rabbit hole where um, it was sort of like a thing where it's like, I guess like when you're looking at a doctor, right? Say like your, your cousin or whatever, right? They become a doctor and you're like, oh, they're a doctor. So I can do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And now you're looking at all these really prominent comedy figures or I guess it could be any profession too, where you see a car thing, you see Hasan Minaj and you're like, okay, if they can do it, why can't I? Right. Cause right. at the end of the day, like you were saying, if you have that conversation with yourself where you're like, you think your true calling is like pursuing some uh, specific passion, then like by all means always go for that. Right. Yeah. And so I just wanted to ask you, 
were there any like specific role models or sort of like influences that you had that sort of like pushed you towards um having that conversation with yourself or was it just like where you were just like oh like I need to do this like it's been enough time yeah I I think like I always loved comedy and and those brown guys you're, you're talking about there's a new crop and like Akash is a good friend um Alingon is a good friend so there's some so Akash Singh Alingon Mitra Casey Aurora Nimesh Patel mm. these are younger brown comics who aren't like you know, they're, they're a bit older, you know, maybe five or six, seven years older than me. And they've been in the business for a long time and they're just absolute killers. And so, yes, you see those guys and you're like, oh, look, look at what they're getting. They're on TV. They're, you know, Akash is selling out theaters right now. Yeah, I, they have the podcast with Andrew Schultz. The, yeah, Flagrant too. Mm-hmm. Um, he's coming to Atlanta on November 4th for this festival that I'm on. And so, you know, you see these guys and you watch their path and what it does is it tells you that it, this is possible because mm-hmm. those guys Akash when I met him you know he's a great example like everybody knew he was he was on the way up you know like you know it and you're just waiting for it to happen and then mm-hmm. when it does happen it makes people like me like the you know a cl- maybe a class younger we feel more confident and and we feel em- empowered and we feel excited so definitely watching other brown comics and other Asian comics get big is great. Um, mm. To me, I, I, I've always looked up to a lot of people. Uh, Louis C.K. was huge for me. Um, you know, now, he, you know, whatever has happened with him, it, it, it has changed his sort of the world's view of him. But when I yeah. was, you know, 18 years old, 17 years old, Louis C.K., Bill Burr, um, Dave Chappelle before mm-hmm. the comeback, you know, yeah. those guys, I, I would just watch, I would evaluate their work. And I was like, this is so amazing. Like, this is so amazing that they have these very deep thoughts and these provocative takes. And they're so, they're so engaging to listen to. And the whole time you're cracking up, mm-hmm. but for, for me, and like, I'm, I'm making a lot of claims here, but that's <laughs> what makes this fun. I think that Aziz is like Aziz is the Aziz broke it all down and that's why I love Aziz because Mm. he broke everything down for brown comics like Parks and Rec for sure I mean the guy his his names on screen are like Tom and Chris and stuff you know it's like now you you see like people like Kumail who have an accent and they're like you know culturally desi and, and they and they've you know come out of that and you know, they were contemporaries, but it's like, I remember watching Aziz when I was younger and being like, oh snap, you can just be a brown guy and be funny. You don't, mm-hmm. you don't have to go up there and, and do your mom's accent. And you <laughs> yeah. don't, you know, you don't have to go up there and, and be like, uh, oh, I hope I don't bomb here. Like brown people bomb, you know, those like yeah. wacky, just easy jokes that, that a lot of people were making and not to fault them. They were making those jokes because that's, what they thought the Brown role was in show business was this kind of like clown or, or the self-deprecating figure that nobody really takes seriously, you know, like mm. this desexualized kind of just little monkey running around. And <laughs> yeah. then, and then you get, and, and you get Russell first who breaks that mold and goes like, all right, Brown people can be cool and hip and they can be commanding and charismatic. And then you see Aziz and you're like, we're here. You know, the, the, the gates are wide open. 
-hmm. So uh, Aziz was, I, I, for me, very instrumental in terms of how I thought brown people would play into show mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to just like touch on something that I think is like pretty, like even now when I'm thinking about it, it's hard to wrap my head on, but like, is there like a certain like way to do um, stand up or is it like just like free form? Like, do you like come in with stuff you want to talk about or do you like, like, I feel like there's planning to some extent, but I don't know. Or is it just largely just like an art that over time you just like let stuff flow. And as you get into that groove, it just becomes easier and easier. Yeah, you nailed it. I mean, you have an idea of how it works. When you're, when you're first starting to do stand-up, the mechanics of it is you're thinking, what is a funny joke? And then you, you know, when you're a young comic, you, maybe your first three years, you write out those jokes and you go, this is where the punchline is. This is where they're going to laugh. You might write like pause for laughter, you know, and you have what we call a set list. A set list is I'm doing this joke and this joke and this joke and this joke and this joke. A lot of experienced comics still have set lists because they like to follow that structure. But when you're a younger comic, you're kind of sticking to the T in the sense that you're like, hey, I'm going to do the joke about, you know, my parents and then I'm going to do the joke about college and then I'm going to do the joke about dating and then I'm going to do that. As you get older and as you get better in comedy, you kind of, I've heard it described, another comic described it as a Rolodex of jokes. So you have this, um, this arsenal of jokes and ideas and things that might not be completely full, but you, you know they're funny and you think they're funny and that's your arsenal and you're on stage and you kind of have a split mind. You know, you're, you're, the foreground of your mind is concentrating on telling the joke you're on, but then the back of your mind is going through that arsenal and making little selections. And when, when you get really good, that's what's happening simultaneously is you're telling one joke, you're selecting another in the back of your head, you're editing it, then you're telling that joke and then you're pulling something else. And, so it's just this process of eventually you learn to be in the moment. And there are comics who are in the moment truly in the sense that they're not going through that arsenal. They're just riffing. Um, and that's, that's a different school of comedy. For me, the, you know, the, the, there's a lot of comics who like, I like to work it out on stage, which means I come in with a, you know, an, a somewhat funny idea and I just improvise until I get the real thing. I don't really operate that way. I have to have about 80% of it done. But that is the process is take it out, you know, spit it out, bring in the next thing, spit it out, bring in the next thing. And as you're doing that, the audience's reactions and the way they're interpreting the joke is, is influencing what the next joke is, right? Like you got to play the, to your room. Oh, the, this crowd doesn't like political stuff. This crowd doesn't like sexual stuff. You know, the, you know, this crowd's over here, over here, over here. Okay, what's the best thing to create the best show? That's how I operate. Yeah, um, I sort of just wanted to ask you, um, so of course, like I found you on TikTok and I thought it was honestly one of the funniest things that like, I've actually seen on the app. And so I sort of wanted to ask you about sort of, I guess, like the role of like this new digital age and sort of like the, the influence that it has in something like uh, comedy, because um, Joe Rogan used to talk about it all the time, especially during the pandemic, when uh, comedians wouldn't get specials on like uh, Comedy Central or like Netflix or whatever. Mm -hmm. He was encouraging people like Andrew Schultz just to put everything on YouTube. Yeah. So what do you yeah. think is like the importance of uh, sort of like this new age media in comedy? Yeah. 
I mean, Schultz is a great example. So speaking of Akash, Schultz and Akasha are best friends, right? And so it's like, you look at Schultz, I mean, the man's about to sell Radio City Music Hall uh, and he's a YouTube guy. Yeah, like he posted he, this he, thing on Instagram and it was crazy. Like almost yeah, the whole thing was sold out. The whole thing sold out. And it's like, I, I remember when I was putting st- sketches up on YouTube and I was in college and a few, a couple of them went viral. I remember the first sketch I ever put on YouTube that went viral. It was on YouTube and Facebook, but it was about when Bobby Jindal goes home. And it's like Bobby Jindal, if you, if you guys, it's just like a, he's a, you know, Louisiana politician and he was running for president at the time. And he's got this like obnoxious Southern accent, like I'm Bobby Jindal, you know, it's, and it's like, dude, first of all, the guy's name is not Bobby. It's Biush. That's his real name. Biush. He changed it. He, in college, he decided he wanted to be this, you know, white guy. And he, he clearly altered his accent. His parents are from India. And he just comes out and he talks about, you know, has these hardcore right-leaning conservative stances. And He's trying to I, be Tom Haverford in real life. Yeah, well, yeah, there's a word for, the, you know, we call them Uncle Thodges, you know, instead of Uncle Thoms. <laughs> he's an Uncle Thodge. He's like, he's just this guy that, that uh, and I remember feeling like talking to younger brown people in, in college during the 2015 Republican primaries, I think. And they just didn't like this guy. Anyway, so I made a little sketch about him, put it online. It does well. And it's like, and then I started uploading sketches, you know, every, every few weeks uh, to YouTube. And now that TikTok, I, I recently transitioned to TikTok because TikTok made it, um, made, made it able to post more than a minute. Uh, that was a kind of a recent change that it can be up to three minutes, but the internet has like revolutionized comedy. You look at these, uh, podcast guys, right? So the podcast crew of like, they, they, they were in LA now they're kind of everywhere, but like Tim Dillon and Theo Vaughn and Joe Rogan and that little, that ecosystem, a lot of them are in Austin and some of them are still in LA. A lot of them are in New York. These guys who are releasing specials online, Mark Normand, Joe List, Sam Marill are putting their full specials out on YouTube, Shane Gillis, for, they're not even putting ads on the videos, and they're selling theaters from those specials. It's like, it is truly, you know, comedy is already a meritocracy, I believe, where it's like, you can't be amazing at comedy and be unknown forever. It's hard. You know, it's not like other art forms. Like you can, you can be one of the best actors in the world and you can never get anything. It's possible. Uh, and maybe that's possible in comedy. Some people would say, but I think if you're like really freaking good, you're going to get something. You're going to, it's inevitable because you're making people laugh. The internet just closes that gap. It makes it so that this is what I can offer. Will you take it? It's basically created a marketplace for art and consumers of art. And it's, I mean, it's incredible to watch. It is stressful as a, as a comic, I'll say, to write the joke, perform the joke, record the joke, cut the joke, post the joke, try to figure out how to manipulate the algorithm. You know, now comics mm-hmm. are these end-to-end creators, which I think is a beautiful thing. It is a lot more difficult, but... You, nobody has to wait for anybody anymore. You don't yeah. have to wait for uh, J- Johnny Carson to knock on your door and give you a late night spot. You can just yeah. want to do Because in its essence, like all it takes is one clip to go viral. And then people just start generating traffic on like your specials or like your YouTube videos. 
And yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah. The internet also shows you the value of consistency, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, you look at like the internet, the guys who are huge on the internet and it's like, they, you know, you know, people talk about Drake where they're like, he doesn't miss, you know, Drake yeah. doesn't miss. You got to not miss if you, if you really want like that level. And, and so the consistency, the internet values consistency. Um, but I think it's, I mean, it's completely changed the landscape. You're talking about Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan might be, he might reach the most unique listeners out of anybody in America, right? Like he, he might, he might truly be one of the most influential voices in this country. And I mean, he's the, that's, that's just the internet. That's just a guy sending somebody a message that says, got to go check out this guy on Apple podcasts or whatever, you know, Spotify or whatever, but it's completely changed the game. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, um, we don't want to hold you too long, but there's this one last thing that I wanted to touch on that I think is like kind of interested, but I don't necessarily know if you're religious, but mm -hmm. in Hinduism, there's this tenant called Dharma, which is like basically like your calling, right? It's something that's supposed to resonate with you as a kid. And over time, like no matter what you do, like that, that thing will always be there. And a lot of times, like even me, there'll be like glimpses of it, but I'm not sure like how to follow it. And it's stated like everyone has it. And the people who are able to like truly live life the way they want to, or the people are able to latch onto it and continue with it. And like, I truly think that that's what you did because hearing your story, how like you did put all this work in into like college, but then you were able to change because you knew that comedy was for you. It's just like a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think like, yeah, that, that is a beautiful concept. And, you know, I, I am religious in the sense that I, I really believe in like, you know, not to get too weird about it, but I, I really believe in like destiny and the idea of things being written. I really do. And mm -hmm you know, you see certain people who follow their dreams and it doesn't work out. It happens. And even if it doesn't work out in the sense that they never get super famous, it doesn't work out like the way that they perceived it to work out. So there are people who pursue their, their artistic passions and it, and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And I think that to the people where it doesn't work, if they're crushed by that, like deeply crushed by that, I don't think it was their actual inner pursuit. I think the definition of, of recognizing what you're talking about, like finding that oneness with yourself and finding that, that stability and that confidence to know, okay, I am a comedian or I am a dancer or I am an actor. I think the honest pursuit of those things are independent of the external validation. So it's like, if you are truly passionate about playing the piano and you never get to go play at whatever symphony you wanted to play on or, or whatever the, you know, the huge venue, you never got to play some stadium that you wanted to play, but you mm -hmm. love the piano, you love the piano. And now you teach piano or you, you know, you just do weekend work on it, but your life revolves around the piano and you're happy. That's beautiful too, because you were honest and true to that real person. 
that's yes. within you. Mm-hmm. I do think, and this is something that's not said enough when talking to like younger people, like you guys are 10 years younger than you're nine years younger than me. And it's like, what I didn't hear enough was that these things are, are risks, right? Like it, it, let's say you, you want to be a painter, right? That is a risk because the world does not validate being a painter as much as it validates being a doctor or a lawyer, right? It, mm-hmm. It's a harder path in the sense that, you know, whether it's financial or whether it's familial or whether it's your, your path in life, it's art. There is sacrifice with it. But what's very important that people forget is you have to be good. You have to be objectively good at your craft. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, it, when you have that first conversation with yourself, which is, who am I? What am I most passionate about? You have that conversation. The next conversation you got to have is, am I good at this? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's really, really important when you're, when you're trying to go down a path that's maybe uncommon, is you have to think am I good at this? And if the answer is no, am I willing to put in the hours of blood, sweat, and tears that it takes to become good? And if the answer is no, then you, you can't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. It's not worth it. Yeah. Those are the two things. It has to be what you truly want and who you truly are. It has to be that dharma. And it also has to be something that you're willing to work at to get good because the world does not reward um, like mediocrity mm. and anything. Yeah, I think it's really, really cool that we're able to sort of see you on the come up, especially in your comedy. Uh, in your comedy, and I think it's really, really cool just to have that sort of role model for us to look up to, especially because um, if we have passions or interests that, like, I guess, sort of don't incline um, uh, to sort of what like society deems as like good. Um, mm-hmm. It's really, really cool just to see how you've sort of changed your mindset and your understanding of sort of purpose and like self-purpose and I think that's really really important because it's so overlooked by so many high school students and just people in general um so yeah thank you so much for that advice yeah Uh, absolutely and and also it's like when you're in high school that's your time to like figure out who you are yeah for sure that's that is when you know not it's not that the I, I think in our community especially with Asians uh the stakes become very high very quickly you know Mm -hmm. the stakes become high when we're seven years old um (laughs) the stakes are not that high it's okay you're allowed to make mistakes you're allowed to experiment you're allowed to uh fail you're allowed to grow you know so many of my friends they 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 had this they had this idea of themselves planned out and they stuck to it from age six to age 35 you know they did everything by the book they had this view and they did it and they mu- I hope they're happy. That's great. If, if, if you're one of those people, you know, I know a guy, he was six years old. He wanted to be a nuclear engineer. He went to Georgia tech with me. He became a nuclear engineer. He works in that field. Now he's getting married. He's happy. Amazing. That's amazing. But if, if that's, if that's not in your destiny to be that, to be that secure in, in what you thought when you were younger, if that's not who you are, that's okay. It will come. Yeah. But don't be afraid. The, yeah. the fear is what is what is what will kill you before yeah. anything else. 
Yeah, um, thank you so much, Jane. Uh, thank you so much, Zane. Um, sort of the advice that you gave us, um, I think we definitely learned a lot from it, especially because I feel like all of us have so much growing to do. Um, and sort of just hearing about other people's stories, that's just the first step to, to growing, right? Yeah. And so yeah, thank you so much. Um, if you enjoy this episode, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, comment on our posts, and share this podcast with your friends. We'll see you guys again next week. Bye.